Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to this special five-part podcast series sponsored by Affiliated Monitors, which celebrates Affiliated Monitors' 15 years in business as the first entity specializing in independent integrity monitoring. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in nearly 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit this podcast series sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this five-part series, I visit with Jerry Coyne. Jerry is the Managing Director of State Monitoring Services at Affiliated Monitors. We consider the use of monitors by state attorneys general. In part one, we take a look at the role of state AGs as enforcer, in part two, the reaction to the big tobacco settlement and criticism of state attorneys general. Part three, the multi-state settlements in the post-tobacco era. Part four, challenges of multi-state litigation today. And part five, we take a look at the road ahead. It's a fascinating series. I know you will enjoy it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. In this episode three, we consider multi-state settlements by state attorney generals who have banded together for litigation in the post-Big Tobacco Settlement era. This special five-part series is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for part three of our five-part exploration of the use of monitors by state's attorney general. In this, I'm joined by Jerry Coyne, the Managing Director of State Monitoring Operations at Affiliated Monitors. Jerry, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. So, Jerry, um, I'd like to take up the topic of multi-state settlements in the post-tobacco uh, era. So uh, we've been talking about extensively uh, big tobacco, the litigation, and the settlement that came up uh, with big tobacco. So I was wondering if you might start with some of the challenges that uh, State's Attorney General had uh, found they had, and really how industry leaders did real did not want to be the next tobacco. Well, that that Tom was a, a phrase we heard over and over again. Who would be the next tobacco? And uh, at different times, there were different industries identified as who it may be. But I don't think we've had anything of that scope since. Um, nevertheless, there have been a lot of different challenges um, out there to you know, aspects of the tobacco case that were used, one of which was that, like we've talked about before, the use of outside counsel. Uh, the use of outside counsel was really something that you heard about widely criticized, um, particularly by groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and some others. And the, there were many, many efforts to prevent attorneys general from having that power going forward. And one of the ones that was actually litigated and made its way to the state to a state Supreme Court was one that came out of the state of Rhode Island involving lead paint. The use of outside counsel, um, having been an outside counsel myself, uh, I always felt like I could bring 
not simply resources, but a skill level that perhaps was not available uh, to a state attorney general. Um, did that uh, consideration uh, also play a part in the attorney, state attorney general calculus? Absolutely. And I think, Tom, to be fair, you're, you're exactly right. Outside counsel have the ability to bring both resources and skills. Um, I think that there are some extraordinarily talented attorneys in state attorney general's offices. But in, when you start talking about, like you say, national level litigation, um, there's a, a set of pressures on that. There's a set of just uh, what it takes to prepare for it and manage that litigation that attorneys general's offices just don't have those resources to do. Um, so you need help in the same way a police or fire department can call for outside resources. That's the way we traditionally viewed outside counsel, that it allowed us to bring in extra help in a specific case. The challenge, though, was really not could you bring somebody in, but how were you going to pay them? And the argument was that if you paid somebody on a contingent fee basis, then you made the, you took away what was supposed to be a search of, for justice by the attorney general and replaced it with what they used to refer to as just being a personal injury lawyer. The argument was that contingent fee counsels were simply motivated by money as opposed to a state attorney general's office that should at least have a more noble purpose in terms of looking for justice. What were some of the defense considerations you heard, Jerry? Aside from the the defense counsel, which I think, or the use of outside counsel, which I think there was some merits to on both sides, one of the real concerns that people brought up was this idea that civil litigation was now going to be used to target industries simply in order to balance budgets. And that um, people were finding was that um, there was more and more pressure being put on the state attorneys general now to come up with money that would be able to be used for that purpose. Um, and there were a few actions in the beginning where that became very clear. And what um, the, defend, the defense community really started to try to do was to move towards a more restrictive use of those funds. Jerry, I'd like to turn now to some of the post-big tobacco actions and uh, ask you uh, a little bit about uh, some of these. And one of the first ones I remember uh, was the car tires action. You know, Tony, it was a, if you remember, it was Firestone tires, which were historically a you know one of the better brands of tires that were out there. It was a national brand. A lot of people used them. And around shortly after the tobacco settlement, there was some situations, particularly in the warmer climate states where Firestone tires had begun to blow out on cars um, without any warning. And um, as a result of that, a large number of states gathered together and actually sued Firestone tires under the state attorney general's consumer protection um, authority. And Firestone was preparing to settle, but their concern was all of the states had not yet joined that that action. And that caused what Firestone ended up doing for the very first time, the states that had not participated in the suit originally, and there were a number of attorney generals that had not, all of those states were invited to join the settlement um, before it became final. So whether you had participated in the original litigation or not, you still had an opportunity now to join the settlement, which 
resulted in monies coming to the state, but more importantly for Firestone, it gave them closure. Jerry, after the 2008 um, financial crisis, I think many people looked at the mortgage industry as if not causing it, perhaps contributing to that financial crisis. Was there uh, a large uh, state's attorney general effort aimed at the mortgage industry as well? I think, Tom, the the national um, mortgage litigation was probably the closest thing we had to the next tobacco um, until very recently. Um, In 2012, there was an agreement between the nation's five largest mortgage servicers. The five mortgage services that were involved in that, which were Ally Financial, Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wells Fargo, serviced over 60% of the U.S. mortgage market. What was interesting in that case was that those five mortgage servicers were never going to go out of business, even though, like I said, in tobacco, there was some sense that perhaps the litigation could be used to put the tobacco industry out of business. Nobody expected that um, those groups were ever going to go out of business as a result of the settlement. But it was ultimately 49 states and the U.S. Justice Department and um, participated in that settlement. Again, probably the biggest settlement that came in the post-tobacco era. Jerry, one thing that's on everyone's mind now is the opioid crisis and the attendant litigation around that. There seems to be a huge um, case going on, actually, as we're recording this in the state of Oklahoma. But I was wondering uh, if there have been any other post-big tobacco actions regarding Big Pharma. Absolutely. I mean, as to your point, they're they're going on all over the country now. There's a multi-district litigation, um, which is centered in Ohio, that involves a number of um, suits that have been brought together. There's the Oklahoma case and a number of others. And then there's other cases also involving pharmaceuticals and specifically uh, price fixing among the generic pharmaceutical manufacturers. But what distinguishes, I think, pharma here, and I say pharma, the the pharmaceutical suits, is that nobody wants to put the pharmaceuticals out of business because what they make is a critical product um, that many people not only want, but many people medically need. The desire here is to allow them at the end, I think, to emerge, but to emerge following a new set of rules and making sure that they actually adhere to those rules. Um, The arguments from the states are that the actions of the the defendants in all these cases have certainly caused damages. But at the end of the day, I think people would much, much look towards a settlement as in tobacco or the mortgage uh, cases that allows the companies to emerge, but emerge um, with a new way of doing business. Jerry, where do you think or what do you think the future holds uh, in this area? One thing we have learned is that money damages are not enough. If there was a theory historically that um, if you simply took away a company's financial incentive to break the rules or do something they shouldn't, the the businesses we're talking about here, tobacco, the, the big banks, and the pharmaceutical companies, or at least some of them, we are talking about industries and businesses that have been so profitable that taking away money is not going to be enough to change behavior. And so what people have to look at as a lesson from tobacco and a lesson from these other cases is that 
what you need to do is ensure that in addition to money changing hands to pay for the damages, you find a way to regulate those businesses going forward so that the conduct does not get engaged in in the future. Jerry, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I've been visiting with Jerry Coyne, the Managing Director of Monitoring, State Monitoring Operations at Affiliated Monitors. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow where we take up some of the challenges of multi-state litigation today. Jerry, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of our five-part exploration of the use of monitors by state's attorneys general. If you need more information, check out the Affiliated Monitor website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you'll join us again for another episode in this uh, fascinating five-part series. I know you will enjoy it. This special five-part podcast series on the use of monitors by state's attorneys generals is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.